0: The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.
1: Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine Aloud. On today's episode, Jonathan Miller says that no matter who wins France's election on Sunday, the country is going to the dogs. Cindy Yu says that China's online censors have been unable to silence critics of the Shanghai lockdown. And Laura Freeman reviews a Walt Disney exhibition at the Wallace Collection. Witty, inventive and full of charm and surprises, she says. First up, Jonathan Miller.
2: Something strange is happening in advanced Western democracies. In America and France, voters keep finding themselves choosing between candidates for whom they have very little affection. In America, we saw Clinton versus Trump, followed by Biden versus Trump. And in France this week, we have Macron versus Le Pen, again, again. Many voters think this is a choice between the plague and the cholera. Emmanuel Macron is disliked, arrogant and narcissistic to the point where he has compared himself to Jupiter, king of the gods. He spent five years insulting and patronising voters and delivering mediocre results. His management of the epidemic was repressive and often absurdist. He's failed in Africa, he's failed with Putin, he's thrown tantrums over Australia and Brexit. But Marine Le Pen is equally gruesome. She breeds exquisite Bengal cats, but she offers France an incoherent nationalism and an economic policy essentially indistinguishable from that of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the French version of Jeremy Corbyn. Macron is evidently smarter, Le Pen more human, although you wouldn't invite either to dinner, perhaps lunch. Macron is a candidate of the media, the bankers, most of the six million fonctionnaires, the parastatals. He has only an ephemeral political movement behind him. En Marche resembles a startup more than a political party, but he remains youthful-looking, and is certainly energetic. Yet voters between 25 and 34 prefer Le Pen. Yet Le Pen is hardly a popular populist. She has twice failed in her presidential ambitions and is equally odd as a representative of the sans-dans, those without teeth, as working-class France was contemptuously described by the former socialist president François Hollande. Her political movement, the Rassemblement National, nay, the National Front, is a family affair, the creation of her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, whose own views can legitimately be described as of the extreme right, and who himself tried five times for the presidency. So it's a family business, a clan, and Marine contests the election by inheritance. During the campaign, Marine has had some success focusing on cost of living issues, which is a pressing concern in so many countries. But she speaks to a France that has all but disappeared, a a sort of nostalgic fantasy in which men wear berets, everyone carries a baguette, and the number one car on the road is a Citroën de chevaux. With Macron, You get the seducer, as his father calls him, who married his high school drama teacher and became a technocrat, wannabe ruler of Europe. He's terribly fond of doing photo shoots. He knows he is smarter than everybody. He loves the sound of his own voice. But Macron, whom everyone expects to win on Sunday, offers not much more than more Macron, which means his politics and his policies are defined by whatever is attracting his egotistical and butterfly-like mind at that moment. He'll say anything day to day, as he persuades himself, possibly not unreasonably, that he's outwitting everyone. His ruling objective is imperious and inflexible. He also seeks the leadership of Europe, but he should be careful what he wishes for, because the Europe he imagines is no less of a fantasy than the France imagined by Le Pen. Le Pen offers more change than the conservative French are likely to be ready for. Her programme of nationalisations, tax increases on the wealthy, and an even more Russia-friendly foreign policy than that offered so far by her rival, as well as a more hostile environment for immigrants, is unsettling. She denies that she seeks Frexit, France's withdrawal from the European Union, but her promise to make French law supreme to European law amounts to the same thing. She has no credible likelihood of establishing even a coalition government. The media would attack her relentlessly. Eric Zemmour needs to be mentioned because the spectator paid considerable attention to him early in the campaign. Zamore, who finished fourth in the first round, had many problems, some of his own making. His talent for controversy left open goals for his critics. He was too incendiary. His focus on immigration and Islam overshadowed the sometimes sensible things he had to say about education and security. He ignored his team's appeals to address inflation concerns. He was attacked and dismissed as an extremist by much of the media, from Le Monde to the New York Times via the commentary out of London. He was, in the end, the wrong sort of disruptor. And on election night after the first round, he told his voters to back Le Pen to stop more Macron. But we'll see if they're willing to listen to him. So, it's Democracy by Paralysis. When Macron is probably elected president on Sunday night for a second five-year term, none of the country's fundamental conflicts will look closer to being resolved. Voting abstention rates will be higher than ever, and Macron will win with a much smaller majority than the 66% to 34% he achieved in the second round in 2017. He'll lack a real popular mandate He'll win the election only because voters are even more distrustful of Le Pen. She can go back to her cats. France will keep
1: going to the dogs. That was Jonathan Miller. And now, Cindy Yu.
0: For weeks, Shanghai's 25 million residents were assured that they would not be locked down. Then, when the order came, the lockdown was supposed to last only seven days. It is now almost into its fourth week, and the government is struggling to suppress the chaos. Last week, 82-year-old Yu Weiming called his neighbourhood committee to say he had run out of medicine and food. Rather than reassure him, the local official despaired. I am really helpless, he admitted. I'm more sad than you are, because you are just one person. I see countless families. The elderly, Mr Yu, ended up comforting the worker. When a recording of their conversation was posted online, it was shared rapidly. By the time it was deleted, damage was done. As health workers battle Omicron, China's infamous censors have their own fight, and it's not one that they are winning. On Weibo and WeChat, people post videos, phone call recordings and lengthy blogs to protest and humiliate authorities into doing better. A video showing mothers separated from children in hospital caused national outrage. Another filmed in Shanghai's Minghan district showed residents chanting, We want to eat and we want freedom. young man recorded his phone call to the police asking, If I break lockdown and you arrest me, will I at least have some food to eat? It's not easy to censor a billion internet users. Most Chinese are now digitally literate. Even my 82-year-old grandmother in Nanjing uses WeChat. Censorship methods have been honed over the years, with social media platforms asked to do the policing. Every week, the central government briefs them on banned words and topics, depending on the controversy of the day. It's down to the companies to do the censoring. Social media platforms either have in-house web administrators or use external contractors, professional censors if you will. These are typically apathetic, apolitical millennials who are briefed on the darkest moments of Chinese history in order to cut out any references. They're helped by bots which scan for keywords and text embedded in pictures. But humans can be outpaced and bots can be fooled. It's common to refer to sensitive topics using English abbreviations, for example, ZF, to refer to the government, or Zhengfu. Memes are used which have a covert meaning. An empty chair signifies the late dissident Liu Xiaobo, for example, who received his Nobel Peace Prize in absentia. Weibo censors must have clocked off on the night of 13th of April because a deluge of unfiltered criticism of the Chinese government was posted under the guise of criticising America, which presumably avoided keyword triggers. This game of cat and mouse sometimes leads to absurd outcomes. The first line of the Chinese national anthem, Arise, those who do not wish to be slaves, is currently restricted on Weibo because the phrase had been co-opted by lockdown critics. Yet despite the subterfuge, social media is still a way for people to make their feelings known. They'll hardly be doing so in polling stations after all. Photos of empty fridges and videos of police violence all put pressure on China's government, which prides itself on its ability to maintain order. And the CCP does care about public sentiment. In fact, millions of analysts are employed by various government departments and local authorities to trawl through social media to gauge what people are thinking. When a video was posted showing a corgi being bludgeoned to death by a health worker in a hazmat suit, the authorities had to respond. They said it was precautionary, but admitted it was senseless, and apologised. State media would not have exposed such a scandal. Social media can. Chinese people have managed to get the Shanghai authorities to U-turn on their policy of separating children and parents in quarantine. Elderly Mr Yu was taken into hospital the day after his call went viral. One video posted on Douyin, China's version of TikTok, shows a quarantine man shouting you can lock us up, but you can't lock Douyin up. It's easy to assume that the Chinese government can cover up anything, but the Shanghai lockdown has tested the limits of its control. During that night of freedom, when the census briefly disappeared, one post stuck with me, saying, this is the real voice of the people. Commemorate tonight. At least I know we are still awake. Though we travel in the darkness alone, there will be a day when we have the force of a prairie fire.
1: That was Cindy Yu, and finally, Laura Freeman.
3: Extensive research went into the writing of this piece. First, I lay on the sofa watching Disney's Cinderella, then Beauty and the Beast, then, because I'm assiduous about these things, Frozen, the sing-along version. I wish I could tell you that the sofa was a Rococo number with Ormolu mounts and a pink satin seat, but that would upholster the truth. My excuse, who needs one, was the Wallace Collection's delightful exhibition, Inspiring Walt Disney, the Animation of French Decorative Arts. It's not often that I leave a show smiling, humming and near enough twirling my way through the West End. Bibbidi, bobbidi, boo. Boo. What a clever and original exhibition this is. An ingenious pairing of the Wallace's 18th century collections with Rococo flourishes from Disney's classic films. It is a pendant to a larger show that has just finished at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Get the Met catalog if you're craving more. Walt Disney, born in Chicago in 1901 to a father of Irish and a mother of German and English descent, was fascinated by the old continent. He first travelled to France in 1918, just after the end of the First World War, as a Red Cross ambulance driver. He returned to America the following year and began his artistic career in commercial illustration. By 1923, he had, with his brother Roy, set up the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, later the Walt Disney Company. Five years on, he struck big with Mickey Mouse. When he arrived in London and Paris on a grand tour in 1935, Walt was a megastar. He visited the Palace of Versailles, where a family home video shows him wandering the park, Louis XIV's Hall of Mirrors and Marie Antoinette's private apartments. He began collecting what would become a library of more than 330 books on European art and architecture and illustrated fairy tales, among them Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty and Beauty and the Beast. He had a weakness too for kitchily, romantic, antiques. The Rococo, the exuberant decorative style, all frills and folderols, that flourished in France and Germany in the 18th century, became an enduring source of inspiration for Disney's animators. Two early Disney shorts from the Silly Symphony series star porcelain figures of the cupids and powdered wigs type. In the Clock Store, 1931, a couple of Meissen-style China waltzers dance a courtly minuet from Mozart's Don Giovanni, while in the China Shop, 1934, a pair of dancers dazzle the tankards and teapots with a pas de deux. There are clips from each in the show, but it's worth watching the full sequences on YouTube, not least to find out what happens when the China Shop lady is abducted by a lusty satyr statuette. The transformation in animation in just three years is astonishing, from crackling black and white to wonderfully rendered colour. Look at how the light plays across porcelain skirts and frock coats in the later cartoon. I can't decide whether it's better to re-watch your Disney's pre-exhibition or post. Certainly, watching Cinderella afterwards, I notice details I might otherwise have missed. The porcelain bookends, a pretty peasant and her simpering bow on the king's desk, the elaborately carved legs of Lucifer's Ottoman cat bed, the Fragonard garden where the fairy godmother transforms Cinderella into a princess. This magical makeover was said to have been Walt's favourite scene. The Wallace displays the 24 separate drawings it took to realise a single second of Cinderella's rags turning into a ball dress, In her concept drawings, Disney artist Mary Blair had imagined Cinderella in a swirl of sparkles. Think of the animators drawing and redrawing our heroine 24 times a second, moving each star of glitter a fraction of a millimetre each time. Witchcraft with graphite and coloured pencil. Cinderella, 1950, was before my time, but Beauty and the Beast, 1991, I saw in the cinema. Age four and three quarters, I was terrified by the wolves and smitten with Chip the teacup. Two decades later, I am still word perfect in Be Our Guest, the show-stopping, mouth-watering, Busby-Barkley routine performed by the household crockery, cutlery and flirty feather dusters. Beef ragout, chief souffle, bee and pudding en flambé, we'll prepare and serve with flair, a culinary cabaret. Sorry. Among the highlights of the exhibition are preliminary drawings for Cogsworth, the Beast's Major Domo and Mantle Clock, Lumiere, Master of Ceremonies and Candlestick, Mrs. Potts, Housekeeper and Teapot, and her son Chip. Every detail is thought out. Where would Lumiere's bronze body naturally bend? How should his wax quiff fall? And how to avoid his candle holder hands looking too much like an open lavatory bowl? Cogsworth started life as a grandfather clock, but had to be shrunk to the same scale as his fellow servants. Early drawings for Mrs. Potts were modelled on chinoiserie meisen teapots, but she became shorter and stouter, even acquiring in one iteration a tartan tea cosy. Interesting to note that Lumiere was silver but became gilded bronze. Metal is a particular challenge for animators. A deep yellow is more likely to be red as gold than blue as silver. When Cogsworth gives Bell a tour of the Beast's Castle, he spouts authoritative sounding nonsense about a minimalist Rococo design and the late neoclassic Baroque period. The Disney team knew their periods, even if Cogsworth did not. The exhibition notes make the point that some of the words we use for ornaments and furniture are body words. Clocks have faces, tables legs, vases, handles, ah, or a. Disney's animators had a genius for anthropomorphism. A single sheet in the exhibition shows ten studies for the magic carpet in Aladdin, 1992. Illustrator Randy Cartwright gives us excited, forlorn, thoughtful, dreamy, shocked, curious, laughing, exultant, mortified and me, each emotion distinct and convincing. Turns out, you can say a lot with a tassel. A first task for many new Disney employees was to animate a half-filled flower sack. There's a section devoted to Fragonard's *The Swing* (1767), a jewel in the Wallace Collection crown and a favorite of Disney artists. An early sequence for *Beauty and the Beast*, later cut, had Belle sitting on a swing pushed by her father. The swing appeared again in test loops for *Tangled* (2010), Rapunzel's lovely locks swinging behind her. Finally, the picture made it into cinemas with a cameo in *Frozen* (2013). During the picture gallery montage, Princess Anna joyfully bounces in front of the family Fragonard, imported from the Wallace to the fictional kingdom of Arendelle. Keen eyes might also spot paintings by Peter Bruegel the Elder, Gerard Turbosch, and John Singer Sargent. Incidentally, it strikes me, looking at it now, that Fragonard's high kicking lady has, like Cinderella, lost her shoe. Every week I am sent a new press release from a gallery pleased to have launched an iPad activity trail for children. It doesn't half depress me. I think of screens as a barrier between child and painting. If you don't learn to look when you're little, when will you? This witty, inventive exhibition full of charm and surprises seems a perfect solution to getting kids into galleries. An introduction to Rococo art with splendid divertissement from Disney. If there's a nine-year-old girl in your life, or a 34-year-old one for that matter, put on your best glass slippers, saddle your four white mice, and park your pumpkin outside the Wallace.
1: That was Laura Freeman, and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.